Hey, this is Gina Grad. Hi, this is Teresa Strasser. Hi, everyone. This is Mike Errico. Hey there. This is Casey Cavalier. I'm Rocky Rose. And you are listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Lucky you. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show. A behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi. And if you are new here, this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week, we get to talk to a studio and a touring guitarist. We get to talk with Chris Losinger. We'll talk to him about how he got to start playing guitar, what it's like working in Nashville, and we'll take a deep dive into his time on the road with Garth Brooks. Now, I first met Chris while working in Nashville for a producer named Bob Bullock, and I've had a chance to work with him several times since. He truly is an amazing musician, and I can't wait to catch up with him tonight. So if you'd like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzi.com. Now, let's get started. Chris, sir, how are you? I'm doing very good, Jay, and I just want to say thank you so much for inviting me to be with you all tonight. Sir, I can't thank you enough. It is my absolute pleasure to have you here. I know I've had a chance to work with you a couple times in the past, but Having you on here to hear some stories from you tonight is just a pleasure. Thank you. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, let's dive right in, sir. Let's take it back to the the early years for a second and just tell me what inspired you in the first place to start playing guitar. Well, in the very beginning, I have to say it gives away my age a little bit, watching uh, Elvis on Ed Sullivan. Very good. Of course, I was watching Elvis play and not really at that time at nine years old, paying attention to Scotty Moore, who was really doing the playing. But, uh, you know, so I asked my dad for a guitar and, uh, he bought me my first guitar and started taking lessons and, uh, at nine years old at nine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My daughter just turned 13 and we bought her a Stratocaster and she's going to start playing, but I don't even know if her hands would reach all the frets at nine years old. Well, yeah, and I started on a harmony, <laughs> and it was really big, and uh, actually too big for my hands. And so, uh, you know, my uh, parents went back, and a uh, teacher recommended I get a Stella acoustic. But, of course, uh, you know, the action was probably half inch off the fretboard. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a little bit of a challenge at first. I wonder if that strengthens your hand. Yeah, it probably did. Probably did. Now, was that a three-quarter size neck or was it full size? Just those Stellas back then, it wasn't, I guess you wouldn't call it three-quarter. I think it was full size, but maybe it was a shorter scale just and, and not quite as fat. It was a little slimmer than the, than the Harmony. So where did it go from there? Well, I just got really uh, interested after a while. And, uh, you know, my brother was playing guitar and we, we happened to get with a really great guitar teacher who was like society player in palm beach i grew up in west palm beach florida and he, he was into gibsons and fender amps so uh after a while my brother and i when we started playing we chipped in and we bought a gibson guitar together one of the single pickup 330s and we bought a brown uh, fender super amp kind of got off on the right foot with the gear anyway and just started kind of learning more and more and got to where i could 
pick up things by ear. And then, you know, I started playing with some friends and some bands and get together and jamming with people and uh, kind of worked my way into playing in bands around South Florida. So West Palm Beach is a beautiful area, by the way. Yeah. But what's the music scene like? Well, back then it was really great. I mean, back then it was a lot of opportunities to play. We had a, a teen club called Music Casters. It was awesome. I mean, they, you know, besides having local bands, he was bringing in like the Rascals, the Knickerbockers, you know, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. I mean, he's bringing in name acts to play also. And there was a National Guard Armory where we could play. Uh, there was a Legion Hall in Lake Worth, just south. So in school dances, I mean, once I kind of got into it, I was just about playing every weekend down there, still going to school, you know, I'm playing every weekend. So you did that, then you eventually found your way to Nashville. I mean, what was that transition like? Well, I had been playing in bands in South Florida for quite a long time. And uh, before I moved to Nashville, I moved to Washington, D.C. for a while. And I actually moved really? to New York City and lived there for a while, trying to break in music. And uh didn't really work out. But I was in back home in Florida playing in some bands. And uh, there were some guys in Nashville that, needed a drummer and a guitar player. Some friends of mine from Florida that were playing in Nashville. Just so happened the drummer in the band I was in and myself, that band was breaking up. So we just jumped in the vans and drove up to Nashville on a whim. Got into town and there was a band house, you know, where most of the band was living. And so we just slid right in there. <laughs> it did a lot of rehearsing, you know, basement rehearsing, but then uh, started playing some places around Nashville. You said you moved to New York. Yes, I did. Uh -huh. So you were growing up in West Palm, you moved to New York. Does that mean your musical style at that time was more rock than it was country? Yes. As a matter of fact, I really never hit a country lick until I got to Nashville. Because growing up in South Florida, it was we were really into the Stax, you know, stuff. Steve Cropper and the Stax music, big influences and uh some muscle shoals stuff and, and some Latin stuff. So yeah, by the, when I moved to New York, when I moved to New York, I was heavy into blues. I was really, had gotten turned on to blues at that point, you know, Peter Green, Mike Bloomfield, uh, you know, all that sort of stuff. And uh, just that's, so that's what we were kind of doing in New York was playing more bluesy stuff. Did New York have a blues scene? Well, it, it did. That, that was one of the problems. We weren't exactly in the blues scene. So you know, we, we had trouble when we got hired sometimes. <laughs> People thinking they were hiring a cover band and uh, playing, I was ending up playing a lot of blues, but we, we did do cover material too, some cover material. Very cool. So, okay, let's go back to this house. How many people were living in this house? In the band house? Yeah. You know, I would, I would guess probably uh, six, five, six people in the band house. You hear about it now, it sounds like it was a lot of fun, but I'm sure it had its challenges. Well, it did, but I mean, when you're splitting the rent and all the bills, it makes it a lot easier to survive, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. Especially at that point, you know, we weren't making a whole lot of money playing. So how long were you in Nashville before you got into country and started to uh, make a name for yourself? Well, you know, I uh, the thing that happened when I moved to Nashville, like I never really really even like country music before I moved here. But when I moved here, some of the guys that I was playing with knew some of the songwriters. And I, I met some country songwriters and started just kind of hearing them play solo on their guitars. And there was almost kind of a folky scene going on, too, with some guys. I just started really getting into the songs. 
And, you know, then at that time, too, it was early 70s, country was changing. It was more like outlaw stuff, you know, like Waylon and Willie and right. John and Cash. And, and so country was becoming a little cooler at that point, for me anyway, for my taste. And uh, so I started get, just getting into it more. I would think at that point, too, when country's transitioning into things like Waylon and so forth, that it's your musical style coming from the South and going up to New York probably fits in better now in Nashville. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it kind of came around to where it was more natural for what I played. So which came first for you, playing live or playing in the studio? Well, playing live. I mean, when I moved up here, I didn't really even know really what a studio musician was hardly. And uh, so I, we played live for a long time. And and what really happened that got things off to a start was there was a publisher named uh, Juan Contreras, and he took a liking to our band and uh, started introducing us to people. And one of the guys he introduced us to was Norbert Putnam that owned Quadraphonic Studios. Oh, yeah. And uh, at that time, Quad was really, you know, Neil Young had recorded there and, you know, a lot, a lot of pop artists were coming. So uh, Mentor Williams had just finished recording the Drift Away album with Dobie Gray. 1973 they needed a band to go on the road to back doby up and since we just happened to be hanging out around the studio we got that gig not a bad gig to get yeah so we were out playing drift away when drift away was a hit that and, is awesome uh, it was a lot of fun and and i tell you I, one thing i like to relate for me that was a really important gig because reggie young credible session player from memphis guitar player had played all all the great stuff on Dobie's records, you know, that drift away intro lick and everything. And, and they wanted everything exactly like the record. So I really had to copy everything he played. And it just took me from kind of being a blues guitar player to realizing what to play, what the taste of playing in the studio is, you know, playing in between vocal phrases, good tone, you know, uh, just, it was like a college education the learning all that Reggie Young stuff, and it really helped me quite a bit. That's a, a great point. We had Scotty Simpson on a few weeks ago. He's a bass player, plays in the studio, but he's on the road with the Oak Ridge Boys, and he said that the difference between being in the studio versus playing live is in the studio you get to be creative and come up with all the licks. When you're playing live, you're expected to learn all the licks. Right. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, so, exactly. No, that's great. So, yeah. I mean, I'm assuming by learning all that and learning all the the intricacies of everybody else's playing, when you got the opportunity to go into the studio, that helped you understand what you should be doing in the studio. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So what was that first studio experience like? Well, it's it's hard for me to remember you know, in the beginning, I was doing a lot of free sessions, late night sessions, just because I wanted to get in there and do it, you know. And uh, one of the main challenges was, uh, you know, your live tone doesn't always work in the studio. You know, there's certain tweaks you have to make to your sound to get the guitar to pop through and recording, whereas, you know, your live tone. But I worked with a couple really, really nice and good engineers, one in particular, Ernie Winfrey. Uh, that really helped a lot towards helping me get my studio sounds together, just helping direct me. And, and you know, it's it's really exciting. And then and then uh, when I first started getting hired, you know, I was starting to get hired on some sessions where there was some of the older, more experienced studio players there. And, and so I learned a lot through that also. So did any of them act as a formal mentor for you? 
Well, yeah, one of them did in particular, uh, a guy named Jim Covard. And Jim was a really well-known guitar player around here in the 70s. Uh, He played on Dave Dudley's version of Six Days on the Road, played a lot with Porter Wagner and stuff. And he really uh, helped me out. He got me on my first master record session for Johnny Paycheck. Oh, nice. And, uh, you know, and, and he just was very inspiring. I played actually on an album that he did. Uh, he asked me to play some slide on it because he didn't play slide. And did you? And uh, uh, Yes. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Very impressive. Yeah. Back then, I have to say, it was before Jackson Brown. And so nobody was playing lap slide. And the steel players were all just playing steel. So if, if they needed slide on a record, it was the guitar player that right. did it, you know. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk about the time in the studio for a second. Were you nervous that first time going in for your first master session? Yeah. Yes, I really was. So how did you get through it? Well, I mean, you just got to do it. I mean, you're there and you just got to do it, you know. And uh, I, I was really nervous. I actually got a solo on one of the things, and that was covert. You know, he was like, there was a solo came up. He said, hey, man, you play it. And I'm like. Well, you, why don't you play it? He's like, no, you play it. Yeah. So All right. Kind of put me in the hot spot. And, uh, and, and you know, that was the first, so, uh, that was back when they had like twin fiddles on the session and, you know, the whole band was there. It wasn't like they were just tracking a rhythm section. So it, it was a little bit nerve wracking. That's funny. And you got it one and, take, uh, right? Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> you, you, you had to back then because... <laughs> You know, you don't you don't want to be the guy that raised your hand and said, "I got to go back and fix right. this. let me fix you know, this." So. What was kind of funny about that is Billy Sherrill, the famous producer, was producing it, and you know, it was for Johnny Paycheck. And I never, I, I was so nervous. I just came in and set up and played, and then packed up and left. I never even met Johnny Paycheck or yeah. Billy Sherrill. I just uh, didn't yeah, stick around to chat. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. The other thing you mentioned was playing slide. Mm-hmm. Can you just explain to us what that's like, the difference between playing something like that versus playing guitar? Well, you know, slide, I mean, uh, you wear a device on your finger. And, uh, you know, at that time, I, I was, uh, I can't even remember what I started using playing slide. It might have been glass, but, you know, you, you wear a device on your finger and you kind of slide it on the strings. And it's when you think of slide, you think of Dwayne Allman or Ry Cooter or Lowell George really slipping and sliding around now do you feel that's crippling like does your hand want to play chords or play notes well yeah at times uh and i wore my slide just more comfortable on my third finger so but i could play some things you know with the other three fingers but it, it usually if i was playing slide i would just play a dedicated slide part and that's all i would do uh, I can't even imagine it. I mean, I'm not a guitar player, but my hand, mm-hmm. just thinking about it, just trying to move the other fingers. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. And, you know, in slide, there's, you know, it's real important to have a good vibrato, you know, and just uh, really, and you just learn to kind of slip around and, and get, get some grease into it, I guess you could say. <laughs> Later on, when, uh, you know, Little Feet hit, I mean, I just loved Little George's slide playing, and, and he used a 11-16th deep socket wrench like a spark plug wrench. And so I went to using that for a long time, copying him. <laughs> I see guys on tour playing with beer bottles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yep. No, that's that's funny. Yeah. Now, once things start to settle in and you start to get into a groove, at that point, what becomes your most memorable moment? Well, well, I don't, I don't know if I have a memorable moment, but it's just, 
you know, the excitement of when other people start calling you for things, you know, they might hear something you did on a demo. Back then there was lots of demos going on. So, you know, you you might hear something you played on a demo and decide to hire you for a record. And uh, David Malloy started calling me to play on some Eddie Rabbit records oh. and uh, producer David Malloy. And then uh, a couple of those went number one, and that was really exciting. And uh, and then Alan Reynolds, you know, uh, started calling me to work on some projects with him in the early 70s, mid-70s. I guess the, the moment I would think about is when I finally started feeling confident enough to feel like I was doing a you know, doing a good job and and, uh, and stepping up to the plate. When you show up to a session these days, are you are you still nervous? Not anymore, really. Uh, you know, at th- at this point in my career, I just I really want to enjoy what I'm doing, and so I feel. You know, back in those days, I would get nervous at times on sessions, but you know, these days I feel just a little more relaxed. You mentioned getting to play on a song that hit number one. Mm-hmm. What's it like when you're you're in the studio, you're playing these songs, and then you get to hear them on the radio, and let alone be number one? Well, it's super exciting, really exciting. It's uh, that's when you kind of really feel like you're you're making some headway, and it's kind of the thing you always dream about. You know, being a teenager, hearing yourself playing on the radio, right? And because uh, you know, I grew up with the Beatles and Stones and all that stuff too. You know, so finally hearing yourself playing some stuff on the radio, it's exciting. That's got to be awesome for sure. So did you ever get into songwriting yourself? I tried to dabble in it some, but and and I do write some, uh, but more instrumental melodies. But uh, I just wasn't really cut out for writing hit songs. Excuse me, I guess you could say. Uh, I tried, a couple guys were generous, you know, big songwriters and spent some time with me trying to co-write. And it just, uh, I felt like they were carrying all the weight. <laughs> and, uh, so I decided to stick with playing. Well, I've seen you in the studio, and I've seen you as the lead session guy on a number of occasions, and your ability musically, you're just incredible. I mean, from just charting a song to performing it to coming up with the ideas you come up with in the studio and directing everybody else on how to handle things, I mean, it doesn't seem like it would be that hard for you to fit into a, a groove songwriting. First of all, you're very kind to say that, and uh, and I appreciate it, but... I guess it's just, you know, I'm more at home with the music part of it, you know, and arranging and uh, trying to come up with the right licks for the songs. And I love to arrange stuff, you know, and when, when you're leader on a session, you have more of an opportunity to take part in that. So when you're doing that, what kind of challenges do you face when you're in a studio with six or so other guys? Well, it's funny. I I, I hardly ever think of it as a challenge. Uh the one thing is when when you're in Nashville, first of all, there's a pool of just unbelievable musicians here, you know, in every chair, you know, guitar, acoustic, electric guitar, bass, keyboards, drums, so many great players. And uh, and everybody really, most guys that we work with have played on tons of hit records, so they're very good at arranging also. So, you know, as you probably found out from working with Bob, when you hire like five or six guys to play on a tracking session, you're getting five or six uh, arrangers and producers too, you know? So everybody has input and everybody has, uh, you know, some good ideas for it. And, you know, the main thing about playing in the studio is uh, just having no ego or, or not taking things personal, you know, because sometimes you might have the best lick in the world in your mind, 
And if the producer or artist doesn't like it, you just got to let it go, you know, come up with something else. And the same thing, you know, a lot of times on sessions, you'll be trying to work on an arrangement with something and some other guy, the acoustic player or the piano player will come up with some sort of lick that just all of a sudden everybody goes, wow, that's it. That's the one. That's the direction we need to head in. Yeah, no, you talk about these guys, and they are. They're all super nice. And all of the experience that I've had in the studio with these guys, nobody has an ego. And if they do, they're very good at hiding it. Yeah, yeah. yeah so and I'm, I'm sure every once in a while someone's feelings might get bent out of shape or something, but I mm-hmm. don't typically experience it. And being in the studio with Bob, I just remember nobody's opinion was unheard. If you had an right. opinion and a thought, mm-hmm. we wanted to hear it. Yeah. The very first time Bob looked at me and said, what do you think? I was like, me? What do I think? (laughs) But then it just became like, I felt like I was part of the team like everybody else. And Bob made me feel comfortable. And Mm -hmm. the studio guys like yourself, it was just a great experience overall. Mm -hmm. So no, I I love those days. But we talked earlier about you having a mentor. Do you have any experience now with you being a mentor? Well, um, I'm not like mentoring anybody full-time personally, but I've tried to really help younger guitar players, people contacting me with questions uh, about gear or about coming to town or different things. I just try and be as responsive as I can to people and, and as helpful as I can. Sometimes different people, you know, friends of mine will say, you know, I've got a young guy who's thinking about moving to town. Can you get together with coffee or have a chat with him over the phone or whatever? And I always try and be as available as I can for those kind of things. No, that's great. And I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The people in Nashville are, Mm -hmm. at least the ones I've had a chance to work with, are always so nice and open to help out. Like we said, even Bob. Bob was one of the first producers I had a chance to work with, so I reference him a lot. Mm-hmm. But even working with Bob, he was just open. He's like, yeah, sure, come on. Come on in the session. We'll we'll put you to work. Yeah, yeah. And even the yeah. very first time I was there, just as an observer, he was like, no, mm-hmm. no, no observing here. Go out there and help. Go do something. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it was great and great time. Yeah, Bob's one of the nicest guys in the business. I've been working with him for 25, 30 years, and uh, it's just everybody – Whenever he calls people to work, they're always happy to come, you know, and, and work with him because uh, not only is a nice guy, but everything sounds great. The headphones sound great. The playbacks in the control room sound great. You know, it just he's 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 got it all the way around. No, he really does. I mean, he's he's amazing, and his mm-hmm. journey through this industry has been amazing too. Yeah, I mean, what a wild ride he's gone through. Worked on a few hits for sure. No, amazing. And <laughs> my favorite's the monkeys. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> but that's a, a story for another day. Yeah. So you mentioned the quality of a good producer. It might be things like the mix in the headphones or the mm-hmm. Q-mix. Um, it might be just having the right pieces of equipment in the right spots when needed. Mm-hmm. So are there any producers or engineers that you just really enjoyed working with? Yeah, um, I have to say there's there's been a couple that I've worked with that, that stand out. And of course I have to mention Alan Reynolds, you know, uh, Alan is the guy that, you know, got Garth Brooks off the ground, you know, producing Garth's records and Alan's retired now, although we just had breakfast the other day. It was great to see him again. And, uh, Alan was kind of my main mentor. I started work with him in the seventies at smaller projects. And then that, that kind of morphed into working, uh, when he, when we started working with Crystal Gale, and uh, I started playing on her records, and then he ended up getting our band a gig with her 
played with her for 11 years on the road. Oh, wow. Then on to Kathy Matea and Hal Ketchum and finally into Garth's records. And so, uh, you know, Alan's just a, a great producer, a great guy, and I, I was honored to be able to play some great music with him for over 30 years. Well, you you just mentioned a big name in there, sir, and I'd like to dive a little deeper into that. You mentioned Garth. Mm-hmm. So which came first, the studio or the road? Definitely uh, in the studio. Yep. Tell us what that was like. Well, uh it was it was really neat. I mean, uh, you know, Alan, we'd been working with him. I've been working with him for a long time. And just one day uh, he called or his, his uh, engineer called and said, uh, we're going to do some sessions with this new guy from Oklahoma named Garth Brooks. And uh, we're just going to go in and cut four sides and see how it works. If it works, we might continue and finish a record. If not, just call it a day. So uh, we went and did a couple sessions with Garth cut four songs, you know, at that time, uh, you know, we were working all the time and we thought Garth was good, but it wasn't like just anything super special at the moment. (laughs) But the one thing that was cool about him was that, you know, we played the first track we cut was something called uh, not counting you. And it was a country shuffle. And we played a pretty standard, almost Texas swing shuffle. And he was like, that sounds great guys, but I wonder if we could rough it up a little bit. Like, like we're in a bar room or something, you know, and played a little more live feeling. So we did that, you know, we went back and cut it again and put some kicks and pushes in and kind of, kind of played a little more, uh, rocking. And, uh, that kind of got us off onto the right foot with him. Yeah. It was great that he spoke up because he was in a room. He, he says, you know, he was, he was a little bit intimidated being in a room. I mean, of course, you know, Bobby Wood, the piano player played with Neil Diamond and Elvis <laughs> The rest of us had played on lots of hits, so he was a little intimidated, but he spoke up and kind of got us off on the right foot. Well, that's just it. I mean, Mm -hmm. it has to be intimidating for a new person to come in and sit Mm -hmm. in a room with with all of these guys. Mm -hmm. But was that normal for an artist, especially a new artist, to speak up like that? Well, not usually. I mean, usually when we were working with new artists, the producer would kind of direct things, you know, and it wasn't like Garth. You know, I mean, he just, he was very nice about it and everything. And, sure. and of course, Alan being the producer, his main thing was always finding the best songs and making the artist look the best. So, you know, if Garth wanted to speak up and have some input, kind of like you said with Bob and you, Alan was all about that. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. So I know he started as a demo singer, didn't he? Yes, he did. So he would just mm-hmm. travel to Nashville as a demo singer. Yeah, and uh, as a matter of fact, a couple weeks before uh, we did his first session, he came over. I had a eight-track Fostex in my basement, did demos for people. He came over and sang a demo in my basement. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy. That's mm-hmm. too funny. But then he had um, that moment where he came to Nashville and felt like he wasn't going to make it and went back right. to Oklahoma. Yeah. So those four songs that you were cutting, was that pre or post that moment? That's post. Yeah. He he ended up coming back. He came here like for a day or something like that, turned around and went home. And then he got up the gumption to come back a while later. I'm not sure how long, but that's when we ended up working with him. So I'm sure that day that he came to town, it wasn't to play or wasn't in the studio. It was probably networking at that time. Right. Yep. All right. So you go in the studio, you record those four songs. At what point Mm -hmm. does that turn into, yeah, this is going to work out? Well, they realized pretty quickly, I think, that they worked well together. 
you know, they decided to go ahead and finish, finish the record. They booked a few different sessions and we went and finished the record and uh, they put it out. Well, first record did really well. Uh, it wasn't really until the second record that things blew up, but uh, first record did really well. And of course, had some great songs on it. No, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So before we leave that first record and coming in after those first four songs, was it all the same people that played on the first four that finished the album? Yes. Yes. He booked the same se- same seven guys. And were you the leader of that session? No. You know, uh, we didn't ever have a leader on Garth's sessions. And uh, we just all get together, and they like to chart at the sessions. They like to, you know, hear things germinate from the very basic seed. And a lot of the times when we would hear a song, it would be Garth playing it for us on the acoustic guitar. It was very rare we ever heard a demo of a song that they wanted us to copy or anything. Well, that's got to be cool to have yeah. that creative ability to go anywhere yeah. you want. Mm-hmm. Now, was he writing all these songs at the time? Boy, he wrote a bunch of them. He wrote a bunch of them. He uh, co-wrote If Tomorrow Never Comes and... Uh, Co-wrote Unanswered Prayers, Thunder Rolls, That Summer. That's a great song. A bunch of the big records he co-wrote. So, I mean, that's, again, one of these things that's not normal for a new singer to write all their songs, especially at that time. There's usually songwriters that are brought in by the producer. So is this that moment that the producer felt comfortable enough with Garth? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, they were writing some really good songs. I mean, the, the very first song that Garth, I think, brought in was Much Too Young. I mean, that's a great country song. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I think Alan, you know, Alan's a hit songwriter himself. And so he could spot that Garth was writing quality songs. Was he co-writing? No, no, Alan never got in on it. But I, I hear that he would he would make suggestions, like especially uh, I heard a couple of times when Pat Alger and Garth were writing together. Alan might say, well, you might need to work on this a little more, this a little more. So they go back and do that, you know, and then bring it back and course they co-wrote thunder rolls together and unanswered prayers to garth's biggest songs not too bad mm-hmm. so when you're in the studio and you're putting this album together do you feel like it's going to be a hit at that time well you know it's kind of funny we knew we were cutting some really good stuff i mean when when you're presented with songs like if tomorrow never comes and the dance it's the songs like that. I mean, you know, something special is happening. The thing of it is, is, you know, we had worked with lots of really great artists that had never seen the light of day, you know, for one reason or another. And so it, it was, we do Garth was special. We do the songs were special. We, we, we had no idea it was going to turn into what it turned into and blow up like it did. Do you remember who else played on that session? Yeah, uh, it was Mark Stevens on acoustic guitar, Milton Sledge on drums, Mike Chapman on bass, Bobby Wood on keyboards, Bruce Bouton on steel, and Rob Hayjakis on fiddle. Bruce and Rob overdubbed their parts. We just did the original sessions with five guys tracking. That's impressive that you can remember everybody. Well, I mean, you know, Garth turned out to be the most loyal artist of all times, and the same seven guys have pretty much played on everything for really? the last almost 35 years. The team that goes out on the road with them, are they all the same guys that played in the studio? Uh, no. Uh, he, he back, you know, when, when he got, uh, when he started going on the road, you know, we were all doing so many sessions. We, we wouldn't want to leave and go on the road because it would 
put a dent in our session career. So he found a bunch of guys and, and hired them. You know, a bunch of those guys are still with him. Dave Gantz still playing keys, Steve McClure, Steele, and Mike Palmer on drums. You know, those are some of the original guys from the very, very original band. Well, let me ask you that. We've talked about this a number of times on some past shows that, especially back in that time, there used to be some sort of stigma where people who played on the road only played on the road and those who played in the studio would only play in the studio. Right. Mm -hmm. So did you find that to be the case in your path? Well, yeah, I mean, there was, I'm not sure if I looked at it as much of a stigma, but it was just like once you got busy in the studio, you know, you might be working every day of the week, two, three sessions a day. And if you leave to go on the road and are not available, that producer is going to call somebody else. Right. And they're going to be in there. So if you decide to go on at that time, you know, we're being that busy. If you decide to go on the road with somebody, you're going to lose some session accounts. No, and that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. I used to mm -hmm. tell students the same thing, that if you go, yeah. you want to be a mix engineer and you go hang out in a mastering studio, you're going to be working your way up as a mastering engineer and not a mix engineer. Right. Uh -huh. So it's just who you're networking with at that time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it makes perfect sense. But you were talking about the second album taking off. So mm -hmm. you were part of the recording of that album as well. Yes. So what was mm -hmm. that album like for you? Well, that, that you know, Garth had had a couple chart records at that point. So when we went back in, we were all excited about it. We were looking forward to uh, recording with him again. And it was great that they called all the same guys back again. Well, you didn't play on the road at that point with them. So was it kind of like a small reunion of sorts? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was great to get back in with him again. What was different about that session versus the first one? Well, not much, really. It kind of, we went, you know, the songs were different. You know, we kind of just went about recording uh, the same way we did on the first record. Was it more comfortable at this point? Well, yeah. Yeah, because we all kind of knew each other better. And uh, I think at that point, even some on the first record, we started thinking, you know, when you work in the recording studio here, you work with tons of different guys. You might work with one band at 10 o'clock, another band at 2 o'clock, right. another band at 6 o'clock. But with Garth's band, because they were using the same guys all the time, we started feeling more like a band. And we started feeling more like we were gelling on, on a lot of the things. And uh, able to, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to say, creating a sound for him but you know we were participating in that so was it starting to become more like family yes yeah and is that what made you eventually decide to go on the road with him well uh, you know not necessarily i mean i actually didn't go on the road with him until 2019 so that's a long way from 1988 <laughs> i guess but, it is right <laughs> that when we did the first session but, you know, for me at that point in my career, 2019, you know, Garth asked me to come out, you know, it just seemed like just such a wonderful opportunity to do that. Two things happened. One was we had our 30th anniversary dinner almost five years ago, uh, and we all got together. Garth was starting a stadium tour, and he was saying, at some point on this tour, I want each one of you guys to come out and be on a show just so you can see the way that people are still loving the music and, you know, singing along with all the songs and still loving all the music we <laughs> recorded 30 years ago. 
so he he did that uh wanted to do that and then another thing happened the other there was another guitar player gordon kennedy that was actually the main guitar player on tour with him and there was a gig that gordon couldn't do so we were recording with garth one day and he came and sat down next to me and said hey gordon can't do a gig you want to come out and play it no yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I do. Yes. And uh, so I ended up playing four shows before that, three of them off stage. Oh, really? Because there was no rehearsals, you know. So I played three of them off stage. So you could and read then, charts? Yeah. Gotcha. And then uh, played one show on stage with Gordon, and then the next show he was gone, and I played. And so, you know, that was my first experience walking out from thousands and thousands oh, of people gonna, like that. I was going to say. So at that point, how nervous were you then? Well, I was pretty nervous. It's like, what have I gotten myself into? I mean, <laughs> we had played big crowds back in the, uh, you know, back in the 80s and 70s with Crystal Gale, but nothing quite like we did with Garth. So after that gig, actually, my little stint was done and Gordon came back and was playing, but Garth invited me to do a few things with him. I went up and played when he won the Gershwin Award up in uh, Washington, D.C. I played that show with them and some other shows. And finally, he just said, why don't you just come out and play with us? And I went, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Lord. I'll I will that. take it. <laughs> so you're yes. out there playing on a regular basis. So I'm assuming at that point the nerves have kind of died down a little bit. Yes. Yeah. It, it feels much more at home now, although there is – you know, every show there's a good bit of adrenaline that happens, you know, a good bit of excitement and adrenaline that happens. Especially it, on a Garth show, right? Yes, definitely. So I know the first time you walk out and see a crowd like that, the nerves and everything are probably there and you're fighting to just get through it. But now that you're relaxed and you're comfortable, when you walk on stage and just look out over a sea of people, what's that feel like to you? Well, it's it's really awesome. I mean, it's a wonderful feeling. It's it's wonderful on a lot of levels. Uh, first of all, just gratitude, just being there and having the opportunity to do that. Also, you know, being dream come true, you know, from when you were a young player, always right. wanting to play the big shows. And, uh, and this is the biggest. And, and then, you know, just like Gar said, you know, seeing all these people still showing up to hear that music. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's very gratifying and very grateful to be a part of it. No, I mean, it's got to be amazing. I mean, I, I look at that crowd, I'm just like, nope, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite a shock in the beginning. Again, you walk out, you get that sea of people. Do you feel like you're that rock star you were dreaming of as a kid? Well, I don't know if I feel as much of a rock star. The thing the thing about it is, is it's, it's just so much fun. <laughs> I mean... It's so much fun, it's hard to even equate, you know, just uh, you see the people's faces. I mean, you really see out to about the first, you know, 20 rows of people and you just connect. I make eye contact with some of those people and there's so much joy and they're so happy to be there and they're singing along with every song. And it's just a lot of joy and a lot of happiness and you just have a lot of fun. And Gordon and I have a blast playing guitar together and uh, we split up the solos and the band is so much fun to play with. And and I, I've admired those guys for so many years and now finally getting the opportunity to play with them. You know, uh, I have to mention Mark Greenwood, Jimmy Mattingly, too. You know, uh, both been with, with Garth for a long time and uh, incredible players. And it's just an honor to get to get to play with them on the road. All right. Which do you like better, the studio or playing live? Well, <laughs> 
that's a hard call, but I have been enjoying playing live more lately. Have you? I really have. Yeah. So again, which do you enjoy more, hearing that song on the radio or getting to see the reaction immediately? Well, I tell you, it's fun playing them live. And the thing that's different about this is that uh, Milton Sledge is out there playing drums also from our studio band. And, and we talk about it. And, uh, you know, we're playing the songs that we recorded. So it makes a difference. You, like you say, you're playing your own licks. Playing your own parts. Yeah, yeah, playing your own so parts. If you, so if you change something, that's just the way I meant it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. awesome. All right, sir. Well, we do this thing on the show that we call Unsung Heroes, where we take a moment to shine the light on somebody who may be supportive of you in the past that doesn't typically get any recognition. Do you have anybody that you'd like to shine a little light on? Well, I mean, I think I've mentioned most of the people, you know, Juan Contreras, that that got me started here. Uh, Alan Reynolds, it was an incredible mentor. Jim Covard, you know, that helped me quite a bit in the studio. Kyle Lenning, you know, great producer, really helped me out quite a bit. I say uh, producer Garth Fundus uh, oh, yeah. used to be, yeah, he used, you know, he produced Trisha's records and uh, a bunch of, bunch of great records. Keith Whitley. Garth used to be Alan Reynolds' main engineer and recorded a lot of the Crystal Gale records. And, and he was very helpful to me towards getting my studio sound together too, as well as Ernie Winfrey. Uh, both those guys helped me transition from being a live player to a studio player as far as my tone and my sounds were concerned. It's funny how it all comes around, doesn't it? Yeah. So you mentioned the tones and stuff. What makes it different to play in the studio versus playing live? Well, it's... Uh, be, you know, besides beyond, you know, you have to be a lot more precise and, you know, tuning is a, definitely a big issue playing in the pocket. You know, a lot of times when you're playing live, you can kind of get away with slipping and sliding around a little bit or hitting a string a little wrong or something because you're entertaining. But in the studio, you know, it's very important to be real precise and uh, and uh, in tune. And, uh, and, you know, as far as guitar tones are concerned, it's just learning how to use uh, different guitars, how to, how to come up with the right guitar for the right part for the record. You know, like sometimes it takes a little experimentation. You might have to try a Strat or a Gretsch or a Gibson or Paul Reed Smith or whatever till you land upon the right guitar to fit the song. But it's just kind of learning those things to where they become second nature. You know, and now nowadays is what pedal to stomp on that might give you what what sound you need, you know, or what amp to use. Well, uh, speaking of that, when you're on stage, you get the power of the amp in the cabinet behind you. Is that something that you need to get used to when you go into the studio? Well, yeah, because you don't have that. Right. You know, usually your amp is off in an ISO box somewhere, you know, separated from you. So, yeah, it is different, you know, learning how to get used to playing through the headphones. And, you know, you don't have all that low end kind of booming out at you and, uh, you know, learning how to tweak your tone. It's it's really good. A lot of the, like it depends on the sessions you're on, like cutting demos. They go really quick and there's no time to like go in the studio and uh, go in the control room and have a listen. But usually when you're making a record, you'll cut a track or two and then the producer will ask you to come in the control room and everybody will listen to it. And then you have an opportunity to listen to your tone, you know, in this control room and go, well, maybe I need to add a little more top end here. Or maybe I need to cut a little more, a little more distortion, a little less distortion. You know, pictures worth a thousand words, I guess you could say. Oh, absolutely. 
And I'm sure there's a difference between what you're hearing in the headphones versus when you go into the control room. In Nashville, you have the Q-Mix that at least you get eight different options right. that you can dial in. Mm-hmm. But the headphones don't have the same response that the monitors inside the control room do. So do you find that when you go in the control room, the coloring of your guitar might be a little different than you anticipated it? Yes. Yeah, definitely. And, and you know, after doing it for years, that's something you kind of learn to judge, you know, the difference in the headphone sounds. Like the headphones might be a little darker. Uh, you know, what you're hearing in the phones might be a little darker. Of course, it depends on what headphones you're using, too. Right. And uh, But, you know, a lot of times engineers will help with that. If you're doing a track and the engineer says, hey, I think you need to add a little more high end, poke through the mix a little more. Or your guitar sounds a little woofy, you know, cut a little lows. Uh, you know, a lot of times the engineer can be helpful with that. I think that's kind of the benefit of playing Nashville, where the engineer and the producer both have not only the ability to give input, but they have the skill level behind them to give the right type of input. But you're also in a room with, say, six or seven guys that all know how to play well together. But you need to anticipate who's going to play what and when because the frequencies matter. So if right, you got yeah. two electric guitar players. How are you making the judgment on who's going to play what? You know, uh, it's different with different guys, but a lot of the guys that I've done it with, you know, like J.D. Cornfloss and, and and Jeff King, like you mentioned, Kenny Greenberg, Pat Buchanan, Brent Mason, people that I've done two guitar stuff with. You know, a lot of times you, you listen to the song and then you just go, hey, you want to go higher, you want to go low. <laughs> and one guy does crunchy big chords and the other guy does the jangly high stuff you know and 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 you do try kind of lay out your territory on on the first run through and then it's really helpful if you stick with that what what gets confusing when i've worked with other guitar players is like they'll play something on the first run through so you adjust your part to go with their part and then the second time they're playing something totally different so your part doesn't work anymore (laughs) you know so it's uh I say when you're doing the two guitar situation, I think it's kind of important to just kind of stake out that territory early on so you can start developing your part. So when you do that, do you find it's you and the other guitar player making the decision? Or does the producer ever chime in and say, no, I want you to play the the low part? Uh, it depends on the producer, but but a lot of times they leave it up to the guitar players. To me, that's the way to do it because you guys have the, first of all, you want to have the input, but second of all, you want to be comfortable with the part you're playing. Right, exactly. So then we talk about the two guitars, then you got acoustics that add a whole nother layer of complexity to it where it has a different frequency it's going to sit in. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, how the engineer chooses to pan all of these instruments out. At what point do you start trying to bounce your ideas off with not only the other guitar player, but now let's hear what the steel player is playing and what the acoustic player is playing. How does this all come together? Well, I mean, a lot of times there's a bit of discussion about it. We might say, well, you know, steel is going to fill the chorus, which is kind of natural on a country song. So, you know, the guitar players will kind of find their spot in the chorus that opens it up for the steel, you know, and leave the big holes after the vocal phrases for the steel to fill same, you know, if you think of the piano might fill second verse, which is pretty normal, but uh, you know, after the first chorus, you want to kind of lay low and let the piano have its say in there. 
And, but sometimes uh, these days with, uh, you know, there's a little less steel on some of the country records. So it's, it's all about the electric guitar kind of, you know, multiple electric guitar parts. You know, you got a guy crunching, a guy playing arpeggios, a guy playing a edge U2 part and a guy playing some fills, you know, <laughs> maybe four electric guitar parts going on in places. I know you j even just talk about it now. You talk about the patterns that the music takes and how piano comes in on the second verse and so mm -hmm. forth. And Nashville has a way of, of doing that. And it seems to sit that way for, you know, a five to 10 year period before things start to change again. So do you ever see that pattern developing and try to get ahead of it? Uh, I guess not really. I mean, I guess the only thing, I don't know if this relates properly to your question, but the, the main thing is just trying to stay uh, current, you know, with the sounds, you know, so, and, and of course you're always trying to come up with new things, you know, being a guitar player, having some little angle that some other guy might not have or whatever. But, you know, Nashville has kind of a, a way of following pop trends, you know, like back in the, 80s you know when david foster and everybody started doing the big pop records with everything stereo well a few years later nashville went to that <laughs> guitar players are using big racks and stereo everything was stereo and dx7s and then you know you could equate the same thing when uh like when cheryl crow got popular you know for a while in nashville the women took over and faith hills records started like sound like cheryl crow records and Martina too, you right. know, and, and and it's sort of Nashville trends kind of following the pop trends a little bit. Well, even earlier, the start of our conversation, you mentioned Johnny Cash and Will and, and so forth, that that kind of was a, a trend as well. I mean, that's following rock music. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So and even now, I'm hearing country records that are being released now that have almost a hard rock sound to them. Mm -hmm. You know, where the guitars are really distorted and really thick and really large. Right. And then as soon as that verse kicks in, you can say, okay, yes, this is a country song. Yeah, 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 and, exactly. And then the chorus mm -hmm. kicks back in and it's heavy mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was just playing a song for my for my daughter over the weekend that was like that. And I mean, she listens to country music when she's with me and she listens to pop music when she's with her mother. Mm -hmm. So for her to hear a song that was like that, that had the blend of the two, and you could really hear the blend of the two, mm -hmm. that she was all excited and it sounded, it, I'm sure it was somebody she heard on TikTok, but she had that <laughs> excitement to her that she recognized mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, again, I mean, they're trends and I don't know yeah, if that's yeah. something you try to, to try to get ahead of or not. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I I don't know that I think of personally getting ahead of it. I just, sometimes it's try, trying to keep up with it, you know? And the other thing that's happening in country now is a lot of sort of hip hop yeah. vibe, you know, with loops and things like that. So, uh, do you, you enjoy know, you those keep, sessions? I, I enjoy just a, any kind of session. I really do. I like playing it all. <laughs> well, I know you've had the opportunity of spending years with Garth. And I mean, even his way of playing country music was was different at the time and just how rock he comes across and how in even the live shows being so energetic. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, he's just got a whole different sound to him. Mm -hmm. and yes, he, he does. And even back then that was considered different and people didn't think it was going to last. Yeah. It was interesting. I think we were actually kind of guilty of starting using some of the crunchy guitars 
back uh, before a lot of other people did. I mean, when you look at Friends in Low Places or yeah. look at Thunder Rolls, you know, uh, I was pretty crunched up. And uh, It's a great song, then, too. Oh, yes, it is. And then uh, you think, Shameless, I think I, I ended up sneaking a, a dive bomb in there on the whammy bar at the end of the solo. <laughs> no, Shameless, so we that doing, was a Billy Joel song, wasn't it? Yeah, yes, it was. Oh, yeah. But we, you know, we were getting away with some things back then. Of course, now when you listen to it compared to a Jason Aldean record or something, it right. sounds really tame. But back then in the late 80s, early 90s, it was kind of right, kind of uh, raucous or whatever, you know. Yeah, and which made it cool. Mm -hmm. Chris, sir, what do you have coming up? Well, we're heading back to Vegas with Garth. That's what we're doing now, Planet Caesars out in Vegas. And so uh, we're headed out there in July. And I, I'm also throwing a little self-plug here. I've been working on a project of my own, an instrumental project, which I'm hoping to get finished up before the end of the year, about 10 instrumentals that uh, that I've written. So let's talk about that for a quick second, if you don't mind. Are you recording that in a studio or are you recording that out of your home? Well, some of it's been in the studio, tracking with the band. Some of it, a lot of the drummers here have great drum rooms at home. Mm -hmm. So I've gone and recorded some tracks with them. But a lot of my parts I'm doing here on my own at home. All right. So can you tell us who's playing on it? Well, a whole bunch of different people. I'm the only guitar player. <laughs> but I've had, had Lonnie Wilson, uh, yeah. Michael Rhodes played on it. Unfortunately, Michael just passed recently, which I, uh, I hated. But uh, Michael's played on a good bit of it. My buddy Spady Brannon, uh, Dan Needham, Gary Prim, Blair Masters. Well, a whole, whole ton of my studio buddies. Oh, Greg Morrow's played some drums on it also. He's awesome, too. Yeah. He's out with Brooks and Dunn. Oh, I didn't know that. That's yeah. awesome. Mm -hmm. It was cool. That's I great. didn't know he was out there either till I talked to I talked to John Root, who's the drum tech, mm -hmm. and he was telling me that that Greg was going to be there. Yeah, Greg's an awesome, awesome guy and an awesome player. He's just a, a force. Yeah. Yes, he is. I was telling John, it's he plays very tasteful, but when he hits, he just naturally just hits hard. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, he's just yeah. a, a fun guy to watch. Yeah, you have no no question about where the pocket is. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's awesome. Yeah. All right, Definitely. sir. Do you have any final words you'd like to leave us with? No, I mean, I would just you know I'd be negligent just if I didn't you know thank my heavenly Father for the gift of music and the opportunities, wonderful opportunities I have, and thankful to Garth for being the most loyal artist on the planet, and uh, thankful to all the people that have helped me along the way. Very grateful and thankful to you for inviting me to uh, to talk with you this evening. It has been my pleasure, sir. I thank you for joining. You bet. Thank you. Now, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Chris is not only a great musician, but he truly is a great guy. So please join me in giving him a big thanks for taking the time to share his stories with us. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can do just that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzi.com slash episode 17. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives. 
your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So, if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.